This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm on a computer screen with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And for this episode, we are thrilled to welcome the legendary Robert Greenfield <laughs> all the way from California. Hello, Robert. Hey, Barney. Gentlemen, how are you? Hi. <laughs> Hi. Great to see you. Thanks for getting up maybe a little earlier than you usually would. Robert is one of the great music writers and biographers, and we're going to talk to him about his career, his books, and specifically about the Rolling Stones in the magnificent year that was 1972. How did you get rolling as a rock writer, Robert? Well, I had begun, this is so boring to me, but then it's my life, so why wouldn't it be? I uh, began writing, <laughs> all I ever wanted to be <clears throat> was a sports writer, covering the Brooklyn Dodgers, which won't mean that much in London. But they left Brooklyn when I was 13, which was the beginning of my adulthood. <laughs> Learning, <laughs> kind of a force, you know, this is the way it's going to be, son, you know? And I always loved music, mad about music. Uh, did Oh, I guess here's the answer. When I went to journalism school at Columbia, I did my master's thesis on the Apollo Theater. And oh, I was, oh. I was, I mean, everything links into another story on the English tour with the Stones in the spring, goodbye Great Britain of 71. Uh, we were leaving Newcastle to go to Manchester. We were driving over the Apennines. And when I say we, it was Ian Stewart at the wheel and Georgia Bergman, who ran their lives at that point in the front seat. And Stu basically hated me because I was an out-and-out hippie, and I'm, it's okay, you know, I got it. And, and I was just talking, as I am right now, sitting in the back seat. The first thing I did was I made him stop twice so I could go to the bathroom by the side of the road, and he said to me, oh, you're worse than Brian was, which I thought was incredible, you know. <laughs> and, and, and then I was just, because, I mean, here's the thing, and Barney, you know this, nobody knew anything back then. There was no internet. When you met someone, you didn't know who they were. You didn't know everything they had ever done and where they were born. And I didn't have a clue as who Stu really was. Or... And so I was talking about what I had just said to you. I had done my master's thesis at the Apollo, and I was backstage all the time. James Brown and Dionne Warwick and just, you know, Joe Tex and all these great acts and great black comedy. I was a different era in the world. And... Now, I actually said, and one of the great accomplishments in my life was I'd be there for the early show in the afternoon. It was only attended by winos and junkies. 
And Hal Jackson, who was a disc jockey in New Jersey, did not show up to announce the show. And I'd been there long enough that they knew me. And the backstage manager said to me, you can read, can't you? I said, yeah. (laughs) And so the act list was taped to a standing microphone. And I got to say, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. I introduced the show, okay, off stage. And this in downtown and downhill, downhill. So I'm that talking like sense. this, and I'm telling the right. Well, I mean, does it get better than that to introduce, wow. you know, every act by name? You know, the Cavalcade show, right? They come out and do three songs. They're like to eight or nine acts. And I'm just talking to Blue Street because that's what I do. Well, I didn't know that the first time the Stones ever came to New York, the first place they went with, you know, was the Apollo. And, and after that, Stu and I were fine. because and this is a point i'd like to make through all this and barney understands this and you guys understand it and it's why i value rocks back pages as an archive so deeply that in the course of all this work and all this research you know you meet all kinds of people it's really about do you love the music if you really love the music then i can excuse a lot of outrageous behavior Okay, because you're in it for the right reason. Right. This is what we love. And so that I guess from that, then I I was a rock critic, which I hated for Boston After Dark. And then I just kept submitting articles that people threw away. Classic story, Village Voice. And then a great woman named Lorraine Alterman, who has been all over your stuff. I love, you know, I got to thank her two years ago after 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. She read something I wrote that I sent her. She wanted to give me a job in New York. I'd had it with America at that point. I said, no, I'm going to London. And, well, there's a job there. As it turned out, that didn't really work out. And then I came back, Isla White, ran into Andrew Bailey, who will come across, come up in this conversation more than once. And Andrew kind of was, you know, can't explain it. He, he, we were, in a, and then I'll tell you how I got on the Stone Store. So Andrew and I could not not have been more different, you know. He was an insider in the music business in London. He'd worked for Variety. He knew everybody. One of the great hustlers of all time. We went to lunch with Georgia Bergman one day, and I'll say this, and I think this is the way it was back then. The music business was so small in London that if you went to lunch with somebody, you could walk out with a record contract. I mean, anything could happen at lunch. And Georgia Bergman was there. And I said, hey, you know, I just would like to go on this tour. I just want to hang out. And God knows why. I think because of the power of Rolling Stone magazine. It didn't have to do with me personally. That's how it all began. That's how I got to the Stones. So, wow. And that tour was astonishing. That that We're not going to talk about it at length unless you want to. But they played town halls. They did two shows a night. And they were playing stuff off Sticky Fingers. Sticky Fingers wasn't out yet. So it was incredible to be with them in that situation. What's that, the 71 English tour? Exactly. Farewell, goodbye, Great Britain. It's absolutely fantastic because at least some of that's been released now, the, 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 really? the live recordings. Yes. And aside from the fact that Gerald Keefe can't sing in tune as a backing singer, it's, fan- <laughs> it's fantastic stuff. It's they really so- great live Rolling Stones. Well, I would, you know, again, the great fortunate nature of my life. I, I was standing at the piano next to Chip Monk. Right. Every show, I you know, listen, I'd seen a lot of music to that point in time because I'd spent a year and a half going every weekend to Fillmore East, late shows, seeing everybody. Mm-hmm. So, And, you know, I first started going to rock and roll shows when I was 15. 
Murray the K show, the Easter show at the Brooklyn Fox. So I knew them. I had never seen anybody like them. They were astonishing. They, mm-hmm. No backup singers, just Keith, just Mick, you know, Jim Price and Bobby Keys on horns. Wow. You know, there's no, no way else to explain it. I mean, you had to see these sure. town halls. You know what town halls in England were like? What, 2,000 people, maybe? Yeah, and, yeah sure. and we got on public, we got on trains. They rode trains. They flew commercial back from Glasgow, BEA. There was no security. I mean, it was mm-hmm. England. It was England at the end of a certain era where you could do this, you know? It was an extraordinary experience. And then the some store in America bore no relationship to that. Do you mind if we just if we just part the stones for two seconds? Because yeah. I just wanted to ask you two things. One, the Rolling Stone office or bureau in London ah. was that was that just you and Andrew basically, or did it expand beyond that? The Rolling Stone office in London was at twenty eight A Newman Street, which right. I reached through this passage, Newman Passage, which I've yes. since seen in a million movies. You know what I mean? It's so incredible for me. It was just an incredible place to walk through every day. And now it's become an icon. It looks like something out of Charles Dickens. It was myself, Andrew Bailey. Oh, yeah. This great woman, Fiona Bauer, and a great guy who <laughs> had a band named Bronx Cheer, Brian Cookman. That was it. And there'd be people coming in and out. It was like a social scene. You know, everybody knew everybody back then. And most of my friends, convincingly or conversely or conversationally, worked for friends which was right. the, hippie, the hippie publication on Portobello. And so... Which came out of the British edition of Rolling correct. Stone. Correct. The they were originally called Friends of Rolling Stone. That's right. Yeah, and, yeah. And so they were the hippies, and I was kind of a hippie. And But there was a great communal thing between everybody who wrote about rock music then. You knew everybody. You knew everybody who worked mm-hmm. at NME, everybody who worked at Melody Maker and Disc. And it was such a large music business press, right? Well, you mentioned hippies. So I just want to take you briefly to the state you live in. I don't know how long you've lived there, but since at least four of your books have been about California and specifically like Northern California, you're you're (laughs) fantastic. Bill Graham book, your Jerry Garcia biography, them as Owsley and also John Perry Barlow. So when did you, when did you move to California? Well, I was in London for almost two years, and, right. you know, I kind of got to a point where it sounds awful, but they were asking me to write about bands that I didn't really, you know, like, who cares? Like, this is, I always wanted to be a real writer, whatever that means. And so I left, uh, I, left I don't know what it means now, to be honest with you, <laughs> but I, I left, uh, uh, I think it means you're able to pay the bill. you finally found out yeah that's my big breakthrough you're supposed to earn a living at this not just for fun and pain right so i i moved to northern california and i have lived here ever since that was okay so i i left london in 70 help me i know that 70 late 71 yes because by the spring of 72 I was then living in Los Angeles, and Mick and Keith were living on Stone Canyon Road, getting ready for the 72 tour. 
And I had already been with Keith in the south of France, right? And I did the Rolling Stone interview, which was just around this time of year. I had been at the Cannes Film Festival, and I went to his house. And, you know, I don't know. There are so many stories here, but I'll just, if I could tell this one quickly, I beg your indulgence. So I get notice. I was on the English tour with Keith and the Stones. I'd never said a word to Keith because he was a frightening human being. Uh, <laughs> an awesome, fearsome creature. It's the only way I can describe him. And also, I didn't know this, he was smacked out and traveling with Graham Parsons and Anita and their young son, Marlon. And they were separate. They were never with the band. They got to every gig late, but they made the show. So so you didn't talk to him. What were you going to say? You know, we did did break into a dressing room together in Brighton, England, but that's another story. So anyway, I'm I'm in, but I've never talked to him, you know, and I'm in con for the festival and writing about somebody there. I get a notice that I'm to go see Keith at this villa. I get an address because I'm going to do the Rolling Stone interview with him. So like, I was a very ambitious young boy. And this is a big step. You know, I could I could never get into the back of the magazine. They kept running my stuff up front with the news articles. The, the English tour was the first article I had in the back. So I had this, I got to the festival late, and I got this, like, James Bond, Aston Martin-like sports car, which I didn't want. And it had a stick shift. And I had never learned how to drive a stick shift. <laughs> so... So now I got to go see Key. And I didn't drive. I was just in con. I parked it. Finish, you know. So now I get in this mega car and I'm on the Corniche, if you know the French Riviera. And I can't get out a second. <laughs> and, and like the French, we won't comment on the French, are going mad. Like they're not just, I, I speak French. I learned in high school. They are calling my mother or, they're throwing me the front. They're passing me and fuck you. You know, they're screaming at me out and I'm sweating and still in second. Okay. <laughs> so now I, I get to Nelcut, which in itself is like, you know, welcome to the hall of the mountain king, you know, uh, <laughs> king, you know, it's incredibly impressive. The gate alone. And I go up to the door and here's, you know, I ask for Keith if he's there, you know, in French to the woman, you know, okay. And I'm standing there. One of these moments, you know what I mean? It's like, but I was standing at the threshold. I didn't realize it. So here comes Keith. He looks unbelievable, you know, no shirt. And he says, Oh, Bob Greenfield, man. And he hugs me. Wow. And he, he says, yeah, man, you'll come here. You know, we're going to do this right. You know, you'll stay here. Maybe the conversation lasted five minutes and 18 seconds. Okay. I get back in a sports car and I have become Fangio. I'm, I'm shifting into fourth. I'm passing guys. I have been empowered by the, the power of the star. You know what I mean? I'm, oh, I can drive. All of a sudden, I'm good. <laughs> you know? and, and this is crazy, but that's what they were like then. Mm-hmm. And especially in the south of France, it was mm-hmm. so powerful, you know, each of them wow. in their own way. Sorry. 
Just the side road there. But I love oh, that's that. Lovely. Jasper's <laughs> taking, that's fantastic. Jasper is taking driving lessons at the moment. So <laughs> call, <laughs> I think, call key. Call key. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh dear. Um, so where where so, are we, Barty? Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I mean, I just want to say, I mean, you know, I've been so obsessed with Exile on Main Street for so many years. It's amazing to sort of think uh, of you just going to Nelcott with none of the history, none of the preconceptions, Nothing. preconceptions, none of the Nothing. stories. It was just a villa to you rather than a piece of rock and roll mythology. So that's well, in itself is just extraordinary. It, it, it was so astonishingly beautiful there. I mean, you could not be, you know, you were living in like another world. It was another world. But they, which I've come to realize all in retrospect, you know, because I had written accurately about the English tour while protecting them, right. you know, they trusted me. And so... It was so different then and so small. But the villa, I mean, talk about people coming and going. I mean, one of the great moments is, I remember Anita saying once, very, very heartbreakingly, why is it nobody ever says goodbye? Because it was, uh, yeah, because you didn't know who they were. I've, I've written about all of this, of course, 18 people at lunch, which went on for four hours, you know. And I was lucky. I was there in the garden period. Keith was not using... You know, a lot of smoking of hashish, a lot of drinking of wine, but it was a you know incredibly. I can't explain it. You know, of course, I couldn't get him to finish the interview. I mean, <laughs> you know, we started off great, and then every day I'd get up with the recorder and I'd look at him, and then we'd be on the speedboat, nicknamed called the Mandrax. That was the name of the boat. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, mean well, I finally had to summon Marshall Chess. I'd been there two weeks and I was losing my mind, okay, because I just wanted to get it done. And Marshall basically showed up and took Keith and I outside and we sat under this tree. And then I'll go into one last story here. And we finished the interview and then I went off and lived somewhere for a week, transcribed it all. Now, here's the moment. Now I go back to Nelcut because I got to show it to him. You know, you have to. It was accuracy. And did, did I get anything wrong? Is there anything you want to take out? Just courtesy. I mean, maybe now that'd be looked on as, you know, unfair journalism, but it made sense to back then to even everybody. Jan would have, Jan Wenner would have agreed, this is what you do. So I go back there and Keith is reading it in the kitchen and he's smoking constantly. And he's, as he's reading, he's flicking the pages on the floor. Okay. And this thing is like 98 pages long. And I'm, there's nothing worse than watching somebody read what you've written no matter what it is, like you'd rather hang yourself, okay? I don't want to look at you when you're reading anything that I've written that I can't stand, okay? So there he is, smoking, reading, pages on the floor, takes 20 minutes, half an hour, finally looks up to me and says, I said it, man, print it. And for me, that's the acid test. Didn't take out... And then, and then Jan Wenner edited some of it out. Keith talking about the mafia running the record business. <laughs> Funny, that. He kind of took that out, you know? So, I mean, again, if we're just talking about Keith, Keith had theories, and you couldn't not – it was a circus. Keith believed, and I can say this now, he's not with – Keith absolutely verified, said to me, this is not the real Tina Turner. I said, Keith, what are you talking about? I killed the original Tina Turner. This is, 
I mean, you know, in that in that <laughs> environment, I don't know what I'm going to challenge him and say, hey, you're wrong, you know, but they lived in an alternate. It was another world. Yeah, totally. Wow. Cool. That is amazing. If we jump forward to the first of the because on the homepage, it's all going to be about 1972. And so. Okay. This, this, I think, is the next big Stones piece that you wrote. And you're you're back in L.A., where, whereas you've already told us you were living at that time. And it kind of starts, yeah. you're in a big black Mercedes with Mick Jagger at the wheel. And you're on the way to Wally Hyde's oh, right. for yeah. another attempt at mixing Tumbling Dice, which is just amazing. You're just right there. And as the reader, you are taken to the studio. And there's this incredible conversation with Andy Johns, the engineer. I mean, it's just fantastic. Mick says, I want the snares to crack and the voices to float. <laughs> it's tricky, right? You think you've got the voices sussed and all of a sudden the backing track seems so ordinaire. He says, he's obviously been in France. For two- <laughs> Classic you do that well. well. You I do know. that well, Barney. That's really oh, the way it was. Anyway, it's but just they, a, it's wonderful. But listen, the, the, the uh, one of those articles ends with you know Marshall Chess like throwing his hands up in terms of the level of obsession. And this is another reason I always gave them respect and gave none of this was casual to them. After they did one bad show on the English tour, Jagger was disconsolate, sitting on the steps with Bianca holding his hand that they had done a bad show. You know, again, if you've seen a lot of music and, you know, as Bill Graham once said, he, had, he put on Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs and 20 minutes into the set, he saw Sam looking at his watch on stage to see how long he had left before he could get Ooh. off. Okay. <laughs> and for Bill, that was, he never booked him again. That's it, bro. Yeah. You know, you're that, they cared and they were, listen, as I've written, I just quote myself until we all go home. You know, Exile, <laughs> Exile is a is a, an album recorded under the influence of heroin and mixed under the influence of cocaine. They never got Tumbling Dice right. It never sounded right to me. It still doesn't sound right. Really? It was a mess. It's, oh, it sounds no. pretty good to me. It sounds oh, pretty damn oh. good to me. Well, listen, we, we, <laughs> we, are, we, are, that. <laughs> we're 50 years on from the tour. Sure. And and one of the more minor astonishing facts in my life is that Exile has come to be recognized as their masterpiece. When it came out, and the person who reviewed it for Rolling Stone magazine was Lenny Kay. Yeah. Patty Smith Group. No one understood it. Like, double album. Uh, well, Barney, you're going to play the clip because this yeah. is a pretty good, pretty good place to listen to this clip. Because I will come back after the clip and say... yeah. It was really well reviewed. There's a myth that that Exile was badly reviewed, okay. except for Lenny Cave being slightly cagey about it in Rolling Stone. Let's and that's hear where what the myth Keith. Comes so this is me yeah. talking to Keith in 1997. Do you recall being sort of miffed by any of the, the negative reviews that Exile Main Street had when it came out. Um, I look back on those as a wonderful portfolio of big <laughs> mistakes. <laughs> you know, any guy out there who interviewed me right. who'd written one of those, yeah, you know, right. I would like, oh yeah, you know, you know right. everything, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. I think, but it's quite understandable in reviews. I mean, being a double albums are always 
you know, they have a lot going against them. First of all, the record company doesn't ever want to do them out because you don't sell as many, they're more expensive, yeah. you know, they're, yeah. and, and yeah. you don't get the volume. That, that's their theory, although yes. they're wrong on this occasion. But, um, so you have to fight that. And then you have to fight what you know is coming up, is that it's too much to be digested in one go. Yes. And that people say, oh, that's good, but they, they're, they're kind of, they, you know that there's going to be a certain amount of confusion involved, you know, with so much material. Uh, mm. Some people just won't concentrate on it, or they'll pick up on it. But at the same time, what thing that like Exile did, being that long, was that it just kept growing. I mean, it just it kept going until you know it, it made its mark. You know, over quite a period of time, really. But yeah. slowly it seeped in. It was, and so I guess you put that down to say, well, you know, double albums. You know, if you put out a great b body of work at once, right, right. it's going to take you know that time. You that don't want to do it too often. You know? <laughs> I, I mean, it's just when I listened to that clip, I went back through all the reviews we have of Exile on on our site, which is about four or five. Richard Williams, Melody Maker, loved it. Nick Kent and Friends, loved it. Roy okay. Carr and the Enemy, loved it. Just the one slightly tepid review <laughs> in Rolling Stone, and it's. That's now the received history of how that record was well, received. Well, rock stars are sensitive souls, aren't they? Well, my, my point would be Keith agrees with me. We both, <laughs> yeah. we, you know, it's like they didn't like it. You know, listen, here's maybe the very telling thing, and this is great conversation. Never had this aspect of it. Is So there we are on the 72 tour. They're not playing songs from Exile. Uh -huh. They're playing the hits and Sticky Fingers. You know, they would do all down the line to no reaction. Like, no offense. I mean, the interesting thing was having seen Brown Sugar and Bitch performed in front of English audiences that had not heard the music, right? Stick Your Fingers is not out there. Only the mm -hmm. Stones, Chaos and Anarchy. Like, dude, what are you doing? The album's not out. Why are you playing? Well, we want to, you know? They reacted to that because of the music was so great mm -hmm. that, you know, the English audiences back then, they didn't stand up and dance. There was some screaming. Maybe at the end they'd get up, but when they and and they were playing smaller venues. But mm -hmm. on the Exile tour, they did not play. They weren't out selling the album. Right. You know, Ahmet was crossing them over into another world, which he did brilliantly. Okay, that's what that yes. tour is. You know, that's, cool. yeah. Yes, I mean, and I mean, if anyone has any doubts about how great they were live mm. on that tour you only have to see the ladies and gentlemen the rolling stones film i mean it, it's just stunningly great do you do you not think robert well i would say that the astonishing aspect to me of that tour having seen them in england having you know hung out with them in the south of france was the acoustic set when right. mick and Mick Taylor and Keith would go to a you know, chipmunk, the, the stage that costs more than the National Treasury. You know what I mean? <laughs> money, just just throw the money. Go ahead, more, more. Give us more, you know? But this small stage, and they would play Sweet Virginia, and they would play the Robert Johnson song, One Night on Behind, you know what I mean? Love they would do yeah, yeah. three songs acoustic. Yep. All three of them with guitars. I think Mick, too. And the place would go dead silent. You know how hard that is. Command an arena of 18,000 crazed revolutionaries. And, you know, it was a mad time in America as there is now. But they just silenced that audience. 
Listen, if we're going to talk 72, I want to say one more thing, which maybe is not yeah. directly yeah. related. But you have to give this band credit, the Rolling Stones, for breaking black acts in America to a white audience. And one of the great moments on the 72 tour was in Mobile, Alabama, okay, where I was always outside before the show started. And I swear to you, and I hope none of this sounds racist, but it is 50 years ago. The uh, venue was in a black neighborhood, basically a phrase that I don't know if people use anymore, shotgun shacks, really mm-hmm. kind of old school southern houses with a lot of older black people sitting. It was summer. It was hot on the porch. And I went and talked to people. Hi, how are you? You know, do you know who's playing here tonight? No, the Rolling Stones. You know who they are? No, who are they? So we get that split. And there were basically 18,000 white kids inside that arena. And Stevie Wonder and Wonderlove, they were at the peak. Mm-hmm. This, I mean, oh, my God. And I can't not believe that. If, and although Otis Redding had been big, you could be big in the South and still have no contact. But I just felt that was a moment, not just for Stevie Wonder, but for all those white kids, maybe on some level. It changed the way they perceived, you know, the race thing in the South. I think so. I don't think you can be that because they were ecstatic. Stevie was getting, I mean, the Stone, everybody from the Stones dressing room, not everybody, I'm generalizing, but every night people would come out to watch him do, you know, Superwoman and Superstition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how great they were. So they broke Ike and Tina. They broke B.B. King. You know, yes. Bill Graham did this, but the Stones, mm-hmm. they really did pay respect to where their music came from. Yes. I think that's okay. absolutely accurate. So your classic 1974 book, STP, came out of this tour, obviously, as did Cocksucker Blues, the film that very few people have seen by Robert Frank. I've seen Not very before. good. It, well, well I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say that, you know. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Uh, <laughs> there, isn't, there isn't as much great music in it, obviously, as in, ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stones. But obviously right. it has some notorious That's... scenes in it, and it's part of the Stones mythology, isn't it? Right. I mean, was did you, just a matter of interest, you connected with Robert Frank on oh, that yeah. tour, I'm assuming? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so here's what's utterly bizarre, and I'll take this uh, incredible opportunity to uh, plug myself. Um, <laughs> although I haven't been doing that so far at all. So uh, <laughs> iHeartRadio, thanks to uh, Gary Stromberg, who was the publicity person on that tour, he and I are about to do a 12-episode podcast on that tour. And in the wow. course in the course of it, the young producers, as I will call them, who know more about the subject than I do at this point, asked me if I had anything that they could use. And I don't pay attention to stuff like that. And my I've sold my archives. And anyway, I discovered they discovered. No, I discovered it and then they digitized it. I it had never been transcribed. I was the only person who'd ever heard it. I have sixty-three hours of tape of interviews that I did after the tour was over with everybody, Keith and Mick and, you know, and, and Stu and all these people. And so I don't even remember what you asked me, Barney. What was the question? <laughs> Robert Frank. I was plugging uh, myself, but yeah. Oh, Robert Frank. Well, I interviewed Robert. I interviewed Robert and, and he made the film with a, a lovely guy named Danny Seymour who vanished after the tour and died on his yacht. And I mean, Robert, had made this great movie, this great film about Allen Ginsberg's brother, 
was an artist of major proportions. His book, The Americans, is one of the great... Oh, it's a fantastic book. It's, yeah. a, it's unbelievable, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Kerouac said of him, you got eyes. It's a great thing to say. Robert was yeah. really serious, and he hated the tour. He'd never been ex- exposed to something like that. And listen, this is a long time ago, before documentaries became quasi-fictional. But they staged so much stuff for that documentary. I mean, Keith throwing the television out the window in Denver, which people have got in the wrong city, the groupies on the plane, all arranged, all right. pr- didn't happen. Didn't wasn't re- Robert was not interested in making a concert film. The great scene of Keith nodding out is incredible in that movie. But I get it. And then, of course, Jagger sat on it, controlled it. for What do we think? 30 years? More? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I saw a special screening at the ICA sometime in the 80s, but it's very, it's still pretty hard to see it. I guess it might be on YouTube. I've never looked. Yeah. Well, wasn't there like a ruling that Robert Frank had to be he present? He had to be there. So that by definition limits it, it, the number Well, they of won't be showing it anymore. Yeah. That's a horrible thing. No, exactly. Yeah. If, I if think you should insist on being present, Robert, whenever anyone reads STP. Right, I, could, I could watch them. I could watch them and, and be in pain, you know? So <laughs> but, uh, listen, I will also say, and this is not plugging, it's of interest, 50 years on. STP was the first full-length book ever published about a rock tour. And I, I say this to, and Barney has some sense of it, I'm sure Mark does as well. Yeah. It wasn't a mainstream topic. Publishing is still in the 19th century, so far as I can tell. And, and it was a risk that who would buy a book about a rock and roll tour? Or who would buy a book? That's how long ago this was, you know? And so, it, what? I'll show you the hardback, but they printed 1,500 copies. Right. Wow. I mean, that's, that's unbelievable, <laughs> isn't it? Well, I mean, it's, it's an incredibly important Stones book in the well, sort of, you. you know, canon of Stones yeah. literature. It's right up there. I know Mark and I both read it, you know, Absolutely way back when. It. I didn't read it in well, 74. Actually, I, I reread yeah. it for the third time earlier this well, year. thank you. You know, I don't reread. Well, one of the <laughs> one of the producers on the podcast told me he has three hundred pages of notes, and I said, "Bro, th- that's longer than the book." Okay. <laughs> I don't know. You know. Yeah. Well, the second piece that we're running is is July seventy two, and it puts you right in the kind of eye of the of the storm. Everything's right. Everything's underway, and you're talking to Peter Rudge, and you're you're talking to Joe Bergman, and so forth. And and it's the scale of the thing is 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 quite. I mean, this fantastic quote from Chip Monk, you know, kind of going, "Why why do we do this?" He goes, right. "I'm getting like." 1200 bucks a week for it. Not great pay. And it's been four months work already. Sometimes in the morning I say, fuck it. I must be an asshole. <laughs> but then on stage when it's working right and I'm almost falling into Nicky Hopkins's piano, I know uh-huh. why. Take a look at all of us, Peter, Joe, Alan. It can't be the money. There's not enough to pay them for, for what they've been through. So tell me why. Why are we doing all this? <laughs> I, I love it. Well, here, here's the deal. It was the immensity of the undertaking. And it's again, hard to remember or imagine Mm. when we, because I was part of it, when we would arrive in a city, it was on the front page of the newspaper. They were front page news stones, stones playing tonight in Minneapolis and the coverage, the press coverage, it was not a, 
It was like a major event in the culture at that time. And it was a military campaign. And Rudge was obsessed and trying to do it all right. Uh, the level of it was astonishing. You know, they stayed on their own floor in a hotel and you couldn't get up there in the elevator. And, you know, after the English tour, it was insane. It was like like a presidential jaunt somewhere. And and just just because I was so affected by his passing. I'll tell you a quick Charlie Watts story, which is particularly English. So the way the Stones got out of the arena, Elvis has left the building, right? As the crowd was still screaming like crazy. They knew if they used black limos, everybody would be all over them, pounding on the windshields and all the stuff we've seen. So they had a camper, an old school, ugly, you know, nobody had campers back then. It was something in the kind of like a southern thing. And you went away for the weekend to go fish. And they pulled the camper into the arena behind the stage soon as they were done, they'd done the one encore, the one song encore. They'd run like crazy into the camper. I think Stu would drive it because he wouldn't let anybody else get behind the wheel. And the camp, nobody would bother looking at this camper, okay? Like, who cares? And that's how they'd get out and either go to the airport or get to the hotel. So because it was like covering a war, I mean, it sounds pretentious, but it was an ongoing story. I was writing on the road. I was filing on the road. And we were in Dallas, Houston. We were in Houston. The camper was backstage, and I, I had a little portable typewriter, an acoustic, I should mention. And so <laughs> I'm in the camper, and I'm writing a story. Now we're back to somebody looking at you when you're when they're reading. And I have my head down, and there's a window in the camper, and I have the sense that Somebody is looking at me. And I look up and it's Charlie. Okay, And Charlie's about to go on stage. And what he's doing is spinning the drumsticks in either hand without looking at it, right? Which he could do so incredibly well. And I'm look, I look up and he's looking at me and he said, you doing your sums? Is, it, <laughs> is that your homework? <laughs> and I, I said, Charlie, I got this fucking story. I got a... a all right, then carry on. And he just wandered off to go on stage. And uh, I mean, I, I just need to celebrate this human being. Yeah. You know, yeah. as the, yeah. always the adult in the room, the sweetest, kindest, most charming. I mean, I can't explain how deeply I was affected by his loss because one of the great gentlemen that I've ever known in my life. Okay. Yeah, Chill. he really was. He really was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we we recently added a, a a wonderful audio interview with with Charlie, and and it was so lovely to listen to it. It wasn't we didn't get a hold of this immediately after he died, but a few months uh -huh. after, and it and it was such a a pleasure to listen to it. I think we were doing a podcast episode with Norman Jopling, who was the first guy really to write about the Stones in 1962. So we were ah. playing clips to him and it was, it felt very poignant in connection with that, Robert. I mean, I, I, in the 19th, in this July 72 piece, you ask both Mick and Keith, I think, is this going to be the last tour? <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, great, uh, great question, Bob. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. Yeah. You could really ask, is this going to be the last good <laughs> tour? Because yeah, let's face really. it, I mean, when I saw them the first time, which was uh, at Earl's Court in 76, 
Yeah, me too. It, it was just, it was to me, Awful. the rot had set in. Everything had, all the rot had set in. The Stones were wow. already like a bloated joke at that point. So wow. when yeah. I then saw, ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stones years later, I'm like, oh my God, what I wouldn't have given to see that tour. A, because Keith, Keith was like still had it together. 76, he was just like yeah, yeah. fucked. I mean, yeah, I assume yeah. on 75 yeah. in America, yeah. which I didn't see, I assume he was pretty fucked there, but he was really fucked at Earl's Court. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the other thing is that, like, when they toured in 71, I was starting to go and see bands at the album. I was like 15 or something, 1971. You couldn't, they only played one night at the Roundhouse. That's right. That's correct. You know, I mean, Roundhouse holds 2,000 people. I've heard that they simply couldn't book anywhere because no one wanted them because they uh-huh. had this reputation. I don't know if uh-huh. that's true or not. But just to play one night at Roundhouse in 71, I mean, who could get a ticket to that? None of well, us. Well, Mark, listen, they wanted to play the Roundhouse because it was the venue of choice at sure. that point. That Albert Hall, but I agree with you. I don't think Albert Hall would have had them. Okay? I don't think yeah. so. Yeah. 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 But there was, no, there was no bother during that tour. You know, people were so grateful to see them. And it was, sure. a, it was a good show at the Roundhouse. Yeah. It wasn't one of the great shows. If you go into the streaming music service of your choice and look for the Sticky Fingers Deluxe Edition, it's got about <laughs> an hour of them playing at Leeds and at the Roundhouse, live okay. stuff. And it's, it's great Rolling Stones. Okay, Absolutely well, great you know, Stones. again, this is I, only the English get into this level of, of perception on anything, which is why I love living in London. <laughs> I, would, I, I would say to you, just to be the spoiler, the Leeds show, which they were hoping... Okay, so the Stones following the Beatles. Well, the Who had made live at Leeds, right? The right. greatest li- greatest live rock album of all time. We all sure. agree. We won't even discuss it. So they brought they, <laughs> they brought they brought they brought Glenn Johns to leave Monkey See, Monkey Do. Right? Yeah, yeah. We're going to record. They in like a very primitive venue. We were all sitting in the canteen before Glenn was there. You know. I love Glenn came in and complained. Oh, it's fucking awful. Sal, you guys are terrible. Here's what you need to do this. He, you know, <laughs> it, to my memory, there was one show. I think it was Newcastle where they did, they did an encore. It was the only, and again, every show was good. Some mm-hmm. were better than others. And there was more of a level of regular competency in mm-hmm. America. And and, right. no, and listen, if I'm going to make another statement, I guess I have the right. No one understands how brilliant Mick Taylor was. Oh, he was oh. I think we do. Unbelievable. I think we do. And, <laughs> and incredible. You, well, you do. Yeah. But, I, I, you know, an incredible player, totally oh. revitalized that band. Yeah, yeah. It's a tragedy, you know, yeah. that, that he came I, and I went. I mean, I, I listened I to all down the line this morning, just kind of Thank getting you. ready for this. And when, when his slide comes <laughs> in on that, it's just like, oh, my God. The other thing is, because he was so clearly a lead guitarist rather than anything else, it left room for Keith's rhythm playing. Yes. And the moment Ron Wood, Ronnie Wood came in, it's two blokes doing more or less the same thing, and it blurs it. Yes. And just hearing Keith like that with Charlie Watts, just sort of like, you know, nailing it down. 
You know, and also, the, this is the problem with getting old, you know, and I don't hope before I die that I get old. But, you know, <laughs> Mick, Mick Taylor was this, another one of the sweetest human beings of all right. time. I mean, yeah. truly an angelic person who fell into the stones and like so many others, you know what I mean, did not come out of it in better shape than he went. Sure. No. I saw the Stones in Hyde Park, whenever that was, a few years ago, and Mick Taylor came on as a guest to play a couple of songs. I think he, well, the one I remember is Midnight Rambler. Ah. And it was this extraordinary, like, sparring thing that he did with Jagger. Yeah. And he was, and he was playing in this really aggressive way, almost like wow. pushing Jagger wow. to the side. And it was kind of, to me, it was like saying, yeah. look what Stay you back. fucking missed. And yes. This is what I did for you, and you you basically froze me out and brought in your mate because he was just was just mm. you wanted bon uh, me. All right, so so let me cast a vote for the alternate party here. I have yeah, to. Sure. I did see them at the roundhouse. I saw the. Mm. They would have been the faces at that point. So I saw them, you know, in seventy yeah. in seventy. Good yep. lord! And so, I mean, Ronnie Wood has kept the Stones alive. I mean, I have great sure. respect for him. As a player, no. What do we think? No, he actually, he, he's fine. He's just, you know, <laughs> he, he's not. He's not the the best Rolling Stones band. Was the one with Mick Taylor in it? Yeah, there you go. Because of the real yin and yang contrast yeah. there between correct. Because Mick yeah. was another generation. Yeah, that's yeah. the point. Yeah. And he played. I mean, the Santana leads and "Can't You Hear Me Knocking." You know, oh, yes. it's just yeah i mean he took them to another level sure. and he was brilliant on stage you know and you're right yeah. he and keith complimented one another and they could switch off the exactly beautiful combination wasn't it yeah so look i mean i think we probably said all we need to say about can, can, can i just say one, one thing, more thing because tomorrow is going to be the fifth and tomorrow thing. is going to be the 50th, <laughs> the 50th anniversary of the night i saw the grateful dead at the lyceum on the 1972 uh, european yeah. tour yes and one of the great shows I've seen in my life. They were great on that tour. Live day. And, and of course, yeah. your oral biography of Jerry Garcia, Dark Star, is just a fantastic, Tremendous. very dispiriting, quite depressing read. His uh -huh. kind of plunge into narcotics and his later yeah. life sort of stuff. Yeah. But no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I have to say, I'm an unre unreconstituted 1968 to 72 deadhead. Mm. And, <laughs> and so yeah. 50 years ago, at the age of 16, there I was at the Lyceum in the Strand, sat in front of the stage watching just the most marvellous band. Oh, Shall well, we leave man. it at that, Barney? Shall we well, move I, swiftly on? <laughs> no, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you mentioned Europe 72, because in a way it was where I came in with the dead. And um, I love it. Let's talk uh, about it's band. a wonderful triple live album, isn't it? It's just a gorgeous yes, it thing. Yes, yes it, it is. is. It is. What I would say, and I have gone through this, you know, when people ask me if I'm a deadhead, I say, no, I'm Jewish. Okay. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, just the way it is. And so <laughs> I, I, I don't know what to say in terms of I've written, you know, between Jerry and Owsley. Yes. And Barlow, I've basically written three books yep. about the dead, right? I, yeah. Yes. My, dead my Dead Trilogy, my Stones Trilogy. Yeah, know? two trilogies, uh, absolutely. Two trilogies. And so I would say to you, I mean, Pete Townsend had a great comment, who was a great commenter, uh, to, at the least. You know, When they played with the dead, imagine seeing the who and the dead. The, <laughs> I, I, have the, I have the poster behind me in this office, you know. And, and Pete said that the dead and their people were like a band of gypsies 
moving slowly through the world. Mm-hmm. You get that, right? The yes, difference yes. between, like, no set list. Wow. Mm-hmm. You don't know what you're going to play today? And then the other great story is Jerry and Pete before the show. And I think Pete said it to Jerry, two of them with guitars. I don't know how this is going to turn out, but let's play some Bach. <laughs> That's a very mind-bending idea. Can't, can, I, can, can't I, I, don't, I don't know. I wasn't okay. there. I, I think, I mean, I'm sure it ended. But, I mean, what a thing to say. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. You know, Jerry was also – I had a great experience with Jerry because he was talking about Bill Graham. And mm-hmm. Jerry is – a. You guys really understand this. Often you meet people that you love and respect and they're less, right? And that's why I stopped going backstage. You don't mm-hmm. want to meet these. If you really love the music, you don't need to meet the musician, you know. But Jerry was something in person. He was a massive brain. Yeah. He had a, a huge intellect, had amazing charisma, was a truly lovely, funny human being. And the fan, it just got to him. He couldn't handle it. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't take it. Yes. Got my chips cashed in and keep trucking Like the dude I met together More or less in line Just keep trucking Well, wonderful. The Dead Stones. Yeah, I was just thinking about your, your trilogies. It just occurred to me. As, <laughs> I, didn't as think, you were talking, I didn't intend so, them. I didn't no, intend no, them. No, 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 I understand. It's tremendous work. So anyone listening, go go get Robert's books. They're all tremendous. Yeah. We're going to move out of Greenfield world briefly into the week's audio, Mark. Will you tell us a little bit about the week's audio? Yeah, it's it's Jerry Jeff Walker, country singer, songwriter of the sort of the the sort of semi outlaw variety, I think it's yeah. fair to say. Interviewed by John Tobler in nineteen ninety-two. Very articulate, very amusing guy. He talks about how he's very happy with his place in the musical world. Not massively successful, but can earn a living playing like, you know, eight shows a month or something around Texas and so on and so forth. He talks about the records he's made that he likes the most. Well, let's listen to the first clip. He talks about meeting the real Mr. Bojangles. Mr. Bojangles being his big hit record. Let's have a listen to him talk about the real Bojangles. I knew a man, Bojangles, and he danced for you. In worn out shoes. You've met Mr. Bojangles himself when you were in jail in mm-hmm. New Orleans. Yes, true story. Old guy. Yes. A dancer. Mm-hmm. I did, were you aware of him before that? No, and I never saw him since, so it was just a little brief period of time there. Right. I mean, so you don't know what his reaction was to you writing his song? No, story. no, I don't even know if he knows it was him. He probably doesn't listen much to the radio. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was just that moment of magic. That yes. That, and I was, I was speaking earlier to the fact that I had just, in that period of time, I had been listening to some recordings of Dylan Thomas doing his own works, and I was became aware of what was called internal rhymes, which I had never done before. And so that's what triggered the song over, was it was a dancer, a man with beats in his life, and I had beats in the song. Mm. He danced for those at minstrel shows and you know yeah. the boom ba boom and then, and the, it kind of danced along and I was also uh, like to write in sort of a three four time a lot and 
this was a jazz waltz, and it was kind of it, it fit many situations. And the and the show business community really adopted the song as as there, but 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 for fortune go I. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's good stuff. He talks about this uh, business associate manager called Michael Brodsky, who clearly kind of ripped him off. At one point, he he alludes to the fact that he's in real big trouble, the IRS. Uh, He talks about various characters. We'll play a clip at the end of the podcast where he talks about Guy Clark. And basically, he was the guy who sort of encouraged Guy Clark to write songs. Which is pretty interesting stuff. He talks very nicely about his long-lasting marriage. You don't often get many musicians doing that. <laughs> uh, he talks about the characters like Hondo Crouch, the kind of mayor of Looking Back, Texas. Well, let's have another clip. It's about Austin versus Nashville. Let's have a listen to this. Even now, Austin doesn't have a major record label there, despite the fact that tons of talent is from Austin at the moment. Why, why is it? Is it just... Because uh... they want to take you somewhere and <laughs> rub your rough edges off. And uh, that's what a guy says. Yeah, they round you off so, so smooth that nobody can pick you up. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's, obviously that may refer to Nashville. I yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, there's, that's where their business is. Those guys own all those studios and want to run all the bills up where where their people are. Of course. So, um, yeah, I understand that, and uh, that's something that goes on. I can't change any of that. And uh, we're not really in the business of the business. I mean, we're in the business of having a life, and you have to raise your children, and you have to have your friendships. And uh, the people that come to Austin, somebody once told me this about going to Alaska, is you never have to ask anyone else why they're there. <laughs> Save south of Oklahoma, east of New Mexico, west of Louisiana, Bobby Charles always goes. We got a little place we call Texas, where the women just grow. <laughs> I love that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really nice interview. He, he comes over as kind of uh, you know a thoroughly decent chap. The, there's a great chunk of the interview is about playing golf. He's very <laughs> proud of his six handicap, as it was, and um, uh, I would. <laughs> You can almost hear John Tober's bafflement through the tape. Yeah, but no, no it's, it's nice stuff. It's nice. Yeah, stuff. it's it's. Lo- I just explained why we're running this is because Steve Earle is this week releasing an album called Jerry Jeff, and it's the third of his kind of tribute albums to these Texan outlaws, semi-outlaws that mm-hmm. you referred to, these Austin guys. And in the interview, Jerry Jeff alludes to them. So the first of Steve's albums was was Towns, which is 2009, which is Towns Van Zandt. Then he did one for Guy Clark out of 2019. And then Jerry Jeff has followed, you know, much faster on the heels of that. So it's it's another trilogy, Robert. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a kind of Austin trilogy. And so you can already hear... Steve's version of Mr. Bojangles, uh, Jerry Jeff's most famous song. You can hear that on Spotify, and it's and it's and it's really lovely. I mean, actually, it's you know typically with Steve, it's more 
it's more kind of broken and grainy and raw than the original. But I loved listening to this. And I mean, I know he's not a very well-known figure in many ways. And I don't know a huge amount about the Austin scene. But this guy was important, wasn't he, in terms of you know, helping to put Austin on the map, I think, and really encouraging people like Guy Clark to yeah. write. And you'll yeah. hear that in the clip that we're playing when when we go out at the end of the episode. Yeah. Is this music that means anything to you, Robert? Does, I mean, are you into, yes. do you like country, yes. alternative country, oh, yes. Austin country? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So th- there is, uh, and I, I feel like I'm setting you loose on the trail here of finding it. There's an incredible documentary about Jerry Jeff made by someone who I've become friendly with, Patrick Tourville. That's not been released. Jerry Jeff's widow controls it. Jerry Jeff, and I know this, I know Jerry Jeff two ways. One, Mr. Bojangles started in New York when I was living in my parents' house. WBAI Radio, which was famous in its time, and a guy named Bob Bass, who was on all night. His show was called Radio Unnameable. Yes. Jerry would, would, you know, you would, he- I would hear Mr. Bojangles at two o'clock in the morning and it just was, you know, in your brain. It was yeah. one of those songs that lodged in it. The thing about the documentary, and this is the reason back to the stones that they're still working. And I never knew it till I saw this film. Jerry Jeff Walker was incredible live. You don't get it from Bojangles. You think, right. oh, he's. He could, his band was insane, and he is the progenitor of Austin. He mm-hmm. really is. He, I mean, if he, t- if he told Guy Clark to write, okay, yeah. and I did it, you know, one of the articles I did for Fusion, could be one of the few you don't have. I spent a day in New York with Towns. Did you? At, wow. Oh, my. Yeah. And what oh. did we do? Looking for a joint. <laughs> we, we have to find that. Not did, you find, did you find a joint? No, still haven't no. found it. No. <laughs> it was it was winter in New York, and there was oh none my of God. these are the albums of the uh, Milton Glaser co- uh, label, the t- right. Tomato Records. What was it? Tomato, yeah, Tomato. Yes, uh, my mother, the mountain, Caroline, all that. I mean, Towns was another one of the uh, the real thing. I mean, I love the fact that Jerry Jeff alludes to Dylan Thomas. In that, in that clip because you know all these guys were were really literary you know they were all well read weren't they i mean guy and and towns and of course steve L. I mean they're all they're all very literary writers i've spent the last four years of my life working on what i hope will be the definitive biography of sam shepherd right yes. and sam again the mix in austin sam was part of the austin scene all uh-huh. these well he could drink with those guys too <laughs> Which yeah. is drink, drink and literature. Is the, is the, well, it's Texas. <laughs> yes, it's Texas. So, so Sam Shepard's the guy who glues the New York of Patti Smith to the Austin of Towns Van Zandt. What a great yes. thing to say. Yeah, I didn't yes. think about that. I mean, they, I didn't know this taking on the book, but Sam was so rock and roll. And he brought rock and roll to theater, legitimate mm-hmm. theater. He was the first person to do this, wrote plays about rock and roll and had encyclopedic knowledge of the music and was was in the holy modal rounders the drummer wow yeah of course exactly exactly yeah, yeah. Wait, i tell you what we should just segue straight into bob newerth we need to just say a couple of things about bob newerth i think um <sighs> who died last week because you know he's in this he's in this milieu as well isn't he i mean he's well he's, he's in the shepherd book because of the, the shepherd is on the on the you know on the tour the rolling thunder tour exactly Bob, bobby newerth is on that tour and 
Bobby Newerth was with Patty before she was with Sam. I mean, it was so small back then in New York. It was all mm-hmm. Max. Max is Kansas City. You know, mm-hmm. everybody on a given night would be at one table or another in Max's Kansas City. And, you know, I didn't know Bobby personally. I mean, everybody knew him then as Dylan's doppelganger. That's a yeah. word you don't hear a lot on these podcasts, okay? And- <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so we ran this Aloronovitz piece. This epic uh-huh, I piece, read it. The, epic right, piece. And it's amazing. So it just starts, it's mainly about Thomas Jefferson K, really. Right. But it starts off explaining why Bobby Neweth was like the star's, the star's superstar. So no, nobody nobody outside of that world really knew who Neweth was, even if they'd maybe seen Don't Look Back. But I mean, I remember Aronovitz saying to me, I could never work out whether Bob Dylan was basing his persona on Bobby Neweth or the other way around. I think it was the former, which is pretty interesting. So when you see Don't Look Back, you see Dylan being really cruel and horrible. Nasty. Nasty. I mean, it is nasty. It's pretty unsavory. And they left it in, you know. I mean, I remember this great quote. Panabaker said to Grossman, are you sure you want to be portrayed in this way in the film? Uh, And Albert uh, said, I'm really comfortable with it. Well, well, (laughs) how about in Don't Look Back? They're going into the hotel. Yeah, Yeah, and the guy says to Dylan and and Newark are in front. Grossman's behind them. And, And the guy says, is he with you? Pointing yes. to Grossman, Dylan said, "Nah, we're all thin, and he's fat." <laughs> that, I don't even remember that. that. Well, yeah, how could you forget that? That's lovely, yeah. man. Yeah, listen, this is interesting. Try to go meta on everything. What no one understands, and I was there then, which helped me write the Shepherd book because I kind of went parallel. Yeah. That was in places he was in. We were there together. No one understands how mean New York was yeah. in that era, the Lower East Side. This was not fun and games, man. These people, the, the Chelsea Hotel, they were all on the make. They were all looking to become somebody. They were all using and sleeping with one another. Okay? So it's just the way it was. New York was awful. Awful. Yes. Back yes. then. Okay? Yes. And when you see <laughs> New Earth talking in that just awful way to Joan Byers and don't look back, it's just, it's just, so, it's utter humiliation. I'm not going to put a kind of misogynistic tint on that it's just straight humiliation with dylan typing away in the background it's it's yeah cruelty cruelty was yeah. the name of the game wasn't it yeah. um, yes it was fueled by what are we talking about amphetamines you know yeah yeah like, yeah, yeah exactly. jacked up i mean see, uh, sam was using methamphetamine writing these plays and it was uh, you know listen this is why i went to london it was an awful place to be and the people who survived it it was not an accident. They were bound for glory. You know, they yeah. were going to get out and be somebody. So. Yeah. So, I mean, let's not take everything away from Neweth in this because, you know, <laughs> he was important and many people thought he was the kind of gatekeeper to Dylan and he gave very few interviews. Right. Uh, he was in No Direction Home, Scorsese's film. But, I mean, and he made a number of records in the kind of folk country like mm-hmm. idiom, he wasn't a great singer. No. I don't think he was really a great songwriter, but he was like a fascinating character in the story, wasn't he? Absolutely. Lord, won't you buy me Friends all drive I must make a man. 
Okay, so we also, more recently, just literally a few days ago, learned that we had lost Carl Coughlin, who was in the original Micro Disney and formed Fatima Mansions. And was a really, you know, important figure here. And Mark, w- yeah. would you tell us a bit about him? Because you knew him. Yeah, no, uh, uh, I mean, around uh, 82, 83, um, I got signed to my first music publishing deal. And the A&R man who signed me was Tom Fenner, the drummer of Micro Disney. And so I got to know the band. I'd go and see them every time I played in London. They were booked to play the Ogre Whistle Test, and they drafted me in to play synthesizer. <laughs> Cahill showed me his parts, and he's got—he had big hands, and I could barely stretch to make these chords that he played. Uh, he swore I had to play them exactly the same as he did. <laughs> of course, I, I actually kind of dropped the old note off when it came when push came to shove. How could How you? Could I? <laughs> uh, 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 and so I got—I I got to know the band with Sean O'Hagan, Tom. I got to know the real world, Tom is and remains a good friend. Cahill then went on to, when the band broke up, form Fatima Mansions, who got a lot of critical success. Then, obviously, you know, the road of being a professional musician runs out, and uh, he started working, I believe, at the BBC in the sort of digital area, but continued making music. Um, quite not so many years ago, he made a, an album called North Sea Scrolls with Adrian Muella, who's one of our writers, and Luke Haynes got a huge amount of praise for that just a, a few months back released his uh, solo album song of co Aklan, and had just actually recorded and finished an album called telephys with jack knife lee uh, as the producer no i mean he's an extraordinary character very strong stage performer you know he's a big man a big strong presence i share a lot of friends with him and he will be very very much missed at the age of 61 it's Far too young. Mm. Yeah. Very sad. Very sad. Thanks, Mark. We should perhaps also mention the one and only Vangelis, oh, who died last week. I'm so glad, so glad you're, you're willing to, to, to run with that ball, Jasper. No, I, Go for I, it. My angle for running with it was just actually that Alexis Petridis wrote a nice piece about him in The Guardian last yes. week. Just I thought it was a kind of... Because obviously, you know, he is... Chariots of Fire, Blade Runner. I mean, Blade Runner. I love fantastic the Blade soundtrack. Music. Actually, it's brilliant. Yeah. And so, you know, it's it's. I think a little bit unfair to to typecast him as just a kind of slightly naff in retrospect film composer. And Alexis Petridis concludes this. So Vangelis Papathanasio ended up not just a garlanded soundtrack composer, the go-to guy if he needed something stirring and epic for a major event, an electronic music pioneer and the driving force behind Greece's most influential rock band, but the thread that improbably linked Rotting Christ, Donna Summer, Boards of Canada, Jay-Z and The Verve. It wasn't what he set out to do, but as musical legacies go, it's a suitably unique achievement. <laughs> pretty good. Which I think is pretty, pretty That's good. That's nice. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Jasper. <laughs> <laughs> we, we didn't forget you, Van And you're right. You know, I listened to to the Blade Runner soundtrack again after uh, after he died, and and the, the the music is such an important part of that film, isn't it? I mean, it is a little bit naff, but it's actually really kind of it's yeah. really appropriate it's, and beautiful. I think. Yeah. There's a reason his stuff got sampled yep. by Outkast and Jay Z yes. and Company Flow and Jay Diller. Right. Like there was something there to give them the the textures that they wanted and yes. the ideas they wanted. Yeah, so I think that's fantastic. That's credit in my brilliant. Opinion.
Mark, would you talk us through the pieces that you've most enjoyed loading in the last two weeks? Yeah, well, I'll keep this really short. A few things. Uh, Scott Walker, interviewed by Maureen O'Grady in Rave, 1968, saying, I want a woman to have my children without having to marry her, an arrangement that would be legal with full consent. He also says, <laughs> people, people ask me why I'm not avant-garde, but I'm not interested in pop art or camp music. I don't believe in wild progressions and trends. So we see the original baby daddy. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is now this I really like. It's Dan Stillman, Rolling Stone in 1977, meets and interviews Cholly Atkins, who's the great choreographer of all the Motown bands. Mm. And she, she writes, each pip, this is Gladys Knight, the, the pips rehearsing their dance moves. Each pip begins by standing as a Dixie cup that serves as a marker. Atkins turns on the cassette and the pips begin to dance. In unison, they strut to one side and then the other, kick their legs up, do some fancy footwork and then propel to a stop in front of their Dixie cups. The whole thing lasts 35 seconds. Atkins rewinds the tape and is ready to start again. I'll bet you thought all this was natural, he chuckles. Um, <laughs> that's great. That's super. Oh, that's I love, that. love that kind of thing. Yeah, um, that's super. Uh, nice thing, Philip Elwood saw the whalers not before they became Bob Marley and Whalers, and it's just the Whalers, at the Matrix in San Francisco in 73. He says, the Whalers at the Matrix are a Jamaican sextet who play primarily rhythmic material of indescribable complexity and are headed by singer Bob Marley, a most impressive performer and composer. The Whalers' music is generally called reggae, inverted commas, <laughs> uh, <laughs> a, a form which has emerged out of various segments of Jamaican life and has recently become something special in pop music around the Western world. Reggae is played by the Whalers is a composite and collective musical expression. Each of the band's six members needs the other for full expression, yet the ensemble is, in fact, a rather loose-knit instrumental group in which even rhythms are not necessarily constant. I mean, this is a guy trying to get his head around reggae. He clearly <laughs> has very, very little experience of it. But it's, 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 I think it's a it's nice, it's nice piece of rock. Did you know Philip Elwood, Robert? Yes, Did you yes. know Philip? Yeah, yes, I figured you must have crossed, crossed his path. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, uh, one of his sons gave us permission to run his stuff. And what's great is it goes so far back. He's writing like in 1962 about Ella Fitzgerald and so on. And I've reached 1980 with grabbing his stuff, but there's still another sort of 20 years of stuff to go. I mean, <laughs> he, 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 he was he was absolutely the elder statesman. You know. Yeah, yeah. What's nice is that, that you, who's the great uh, San Francisco critic? Ralph J. Gleason. Yeah, R yeah. Ralph J. Gleason. Is that the two of them were writing for effectively comp essentially competing papers. But they were clearly great friends because they're all, they seem to be around at each other's houses all the time. Wow, you know? I didn't know that. Yeah, oh. no, it's, it's, it's very nice. Last piece I was going to mention takes us up to 1994. is Dave, the wonderful David Toop interviewing the Aphex twin for the, the Times. Ah. I forget which, which of the... What's his name? There's only yeah, one, well, what, Richard, Richard D. James. D. That's right. He says, they, that is dance music producers, are people you can't hold a conversation with. People like me, people like me, bedroom bores coming into the public eye. That's quite amusing. <laughs> that's, so, that's my lot. Jasper, have you got anything to... Yeah, I'll mention a couple of quick things. First of which is an article called Street Life from Jockey Slut in December 2001. It's about his interview with The Streets. Excellent. That, Mark, you scanned for us, which is great. And he's a funny guy, Mike Skinner. Yeah. 
Music's really conservative, he opines. If a house record comes out and it's got one different noise in it, people go, ooh, it's defining a genre. (laughs) (laughs) The streets, however, from the lo-fi production to Skinner's unique Brahm enunciation, which, notice I'm not trying to emulate, genuinely sounds like nothing else around. I used to do hip-hop and use an American accent like everyone else, he freely admits. It sounded shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really the original Love the part ma- original pirate material that first yeah. album is still a fantastic record. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I quite like the fact that he made a couple of other records, but he hasn't sort of pursued it in a mad sort of way. Like he has to keep churning stuff out. And He's a maybe, very interesting guy, I think. Very, I really very, do. Yeah, yeah. You know, he still does worthwhile stuff, and yes. he is. He's just yeah. He's one of certainly one of the great brummies in my estimation. <laughs> <laughs> Original pirate material. You're listening to the street. down your aerial. How's it come to this? Original pirate material. You're listening to the street. down your aerial. Make yourself at home. We got diesel or some of that homegrown. The other thing is Chantel is the feisty feminist Rihanna. Lisa Verico in the Times in January 2009. And Chantel is a I, I mean, I slightly forgotten kind of Barbadian pop. I mean, she just never made it to the to the heights right. of Rihanna. But it's an interesting article. And, and it's kind of at a time when she's trying to be a pop singer, but clearly still wants to be recording like soca and dancehall kind of inspired sounds. And the, she tells the story of how she got into music. And it was at eight, she saw Disney's Little Mermaid and started singing. I literally wanted to be Ariel, have her tail and everything, she laughs. But it was Sebastian the Crab who really inspired me. He had exactly my accent. It sounds silly, but it was the first time I realized someone who sounded like me could sing pop, mm-hmm. which is it, actually kind of an interesting point to make. And yeah, I just thought I'd mention it's that. It's not talking about Rihanna. This, when the West Indies cricket team were here last year, it turns out about three of them went to school with her. And they're still pals, and every time she kind of goes back to Barbados, they all sort of get together. <laughs> well, Chantel was in like the army cadets or whatever with Rihanna, right. and like was like a rank higher, and could make like forced her to do push-ups and stuff. That's also mentioned in this article. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's very funny. I love it. So that's my lot. Wonderful. I think that brings us to the end of the episode. I will just mention in passing that because I think. We said the other day, we, we've been adding transcriptions of some of our audio interviews. We're hoping at some point to have transcribed all, you know, 800, but that's some years off, I think. But we did manage to complete a transcription of that Keith Richards interview I did in 1997. So if you want to refer to that uh, or just listen to it, it's on Rock's Back Pages. Funny that. Yeah, funny that, funny that. So, Robert, any last words you want to share with your vast global audience? Yeah, well, (laughs) I I don't know about that, but I'd rather... (laughs) (laughs) It's a a small cult, as they say, you know. So I must say, gentlemen, that in this college of musical knowledge that you have created, not just on the web, but today, I am an entering freshman. And it's not often that I speak to people who know so much more about so much more music than I do. And so this is why, and this is an unheralded plug, Rock's Back Page is is such a valuable effort. It is the ultimate archive. And the fact that someone who has been doing this as long as I have to read, because I grew up in in Brooklyn, reading Al Aronowitz in the New York Post. I mean, the guys, you yes. know, the only guys who were writing back then were Richard Goldstein in The Voice. You have him and Al Aronowitz, who I never met in The Post. And so that article was extraordinary. 
I mean, this is something so far beyond, well, it is the music as the culture that we understand that needs to be whether anything is going to last, you know, beyond you get what I'm saying without saying it. But this is so you're doing God's work, gentlemen. Oh, that's very kind of you. That's very, 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 very kind of you to say that. That's fantastic. <laughs> but, you know, that means a hell of a lot. It's really, I mean, it, we're honoured to have you on Rock's oh, page. God, I have no. to tell you, I mean, you're one of the greats. And it wouldn't be the same without you on it. And I, you know, so I, I, we're incredibly grateful that you came on board when you did. I was thinking, you know, because your amazing Armand Ertigan biography, I remember we we featured that and that's already 11 years old. It feels like the other day that I was asking you, could you pull out something, you know, a nice excerpt from the book? And I was astonished to find that was 11 years ago. So uh, you've been on RBP for some time. Thank you. Thank you for for, for being part of it really. And for, for coming along today, um, joining us from 6,000, 6,000 long miles away. (laughs) You can have your breakfast now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, I'm, going, I'm going for a drink yeah I know. Going for a drink. <laughs> so let's going to the, the pub and you're the only thing I thought porridge. it's five o'clock it's pub time in London I know that's <laughs> yeah. I yeah. would yeah. love to go with you that's all oh. I can say <laughs> okay. yeah we'd love it we'll pull up a chair for you at some point <laughs> alright thank, thank thanks you again join, yeah. for joining so much and Mark we're going out on the third and last clip from the Jerry Jeff Walker yeah you're talking about Guy Clark his relationship with Guy Clark Wonderful. Well, goodbye. I used to sleep on Guy's couch. He was a a good musician, and and he was a craftsman. He was an artist, and he built guitars for a while. But he never wrote anything. So Towns, Van Zant, and I used to stay with Guy whenever we came through town, and Guy was always looking at us like, how hard can it be? We kept telling him, it's not very hard. You just pick something you know about and write it down. Yeah. So one day he wrote five songs. He wrote one, and I think the first one he wrote, he may tell you different, was, uh, I thought it was Old Time Feeling. Good song. Yeah, which I liked, and I thought the imagery was great, and he was so successful. Then he went back upstairs, and then he wrote L.A. Freeway, and he came back down, and then he went back up and wrote something else. I don't remember what it was, but I remember those are the first two that I heard. Oh, yeah. And so I had a record deal, and I was going to record, and I thought, well, I'll do Old Time Feeling on the record. And I went, and I said, yeah, I'm going to play this song. I took to my people, you know, that were involved with the records and, the, and my office and everything, and I said, you ought to sign this guy because he's writing some really good material now and I said listen to this song I played Old Time Feeling and they said that's not too bad uh, what else does he do and I, said, I played him L.A. Freeman they said you got to sing that one that's a hit That was Jerry Jeff Walker in conversation with John Tobler in 1992, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Robert Greenfield. Find his books, including STP, A Journey Through America with the Rolling Stones, in all good bookshops. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rock's Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 